we have. Well, what did the authority, the Federal Reserve to begin with, but several other government agencies that are also supposed to control and regulate private banking? Keep that in the back of your mind. What did they do? Well, they merged these banks into other banks. Here's what happened. The government comes in, takes a long, hard look at how bad the collapse is, how many billions of dollars have been lost. And then the government comes in, tries to find a bank that isn't busted, a bank that's still functioning, and then tries to persuade that bank, I'm being polite here, to come in and rescue, take over the failed bank. And in order for the big bank to do that, the government has to sweeten the opportunity. It has to give the big bank, the little broken bank, at a discount with maybe some money helping out to make it all very profitable. Did that happen as usual? You bet. And now let's take a look at what the government did. And I'm going to focus on the First Republic Bank because that was the biggest of those that crashed. Basic answer, the government came in and arranged to merge the First Republic Bank into J.P. Morgan Chase Bank. And I want to talk to you about what that means. First of all, the government made it very attractive. It took them weeks to do it, during which the whole world wondered what is going to happen to the First Republic Bank. A bunch of private banks came in and put many billions of dollars of deposits into the First Republic Bank to offset the loss of billions of dollars of deposits as people who used and businesses who used First Republic ran away. Why? Because it turns out their accounts weren't insured by the federal government. They had become sloppy, lazy, didn't pay attention. Who knows? They know how to insure deposits. They just didn't do it. And the bank encouraged them. And so now they were pulling their deposits out because they were fearful that there would be a collapse of the bank, which it was, and that their uninsured deposits would be lost. So in came a bunch of private banks, including J.P. Morgan Chase, deposited, if I recall correctly, 30 to $40 billion overnight into the First Republic, hoping that that would solve the problem. It didn't. And I want to stress, it didn't. These people in charge make big mistakes, big failures of judgment, big moves they regret. That was one of them. So then the government was called in to backstop. And here's what the government did. It persuaded, with lots of sweeteners that I'll get to in a few minutes, it persuaded J.P. Morgan Chase, one of the largest banks in the United States, to take over the First Republic Bank, and that's what happened. That process of merging the two is now underway, but the deal is done, sealed, and delivered. Now, Let's be real honest, which the mass media in this situation 
usually aren't, and they haven't been terribly forthcoming here either. Back in 2008 and 9, when we had a banking collapse, at that point, much worse than the one we have now so far. At that point, one of the things the government did was to make official the designation of certain banks as, quote, too big to fail. Here's all that that means. This bank is so big, has loaned money to so many big American corporations, not to speak of foreign ones, that if this bank failed, there's a serious risk it would take the whole American economy and maybe a parts of the rest of the world down with it. In other words, it's too big to allow it to fail. Nobody quite knows what this means. Does it mean, for example, that they have a blanket, they can do whatever they want because the government will come in with the full faith and credit of the United States to back them up. Looks like that. But of course, that's terribly dangerous. Why? Because it means they don't face any real risk. They make an investment, it doesn't go well. They're too big to fail. Government will save them. If they take more deposits that they can manage, no problem. The government will come in, bail them out. Heaven knows the government came in and bailed out a much smaller bank, First Republic, for fear of what its collapse might do. They're certainly going to do it for Chase Manhattan. And you know what that means? It means one of two things. J.P. Morgan Chase may now take risks that are very dangerous for our economy because they're not risks for them. They are too big to fail. Or they'll have the government regulator over a barrel. They can threaten the government, if you don't do what we want, we will take risks that may bring the system down or force you into bailing us out with incredible amounts of money, which will make the American public angry at another bank bailout. Here's the problem that has to be faced, but isn't being. We live in an economy in which we depend on money, banking, and credit. Housing, one of the most important sectors, depends on credit. The vast majority of people buy their homes with a mortgage. Mortgage is just a word for a loan from a bank. The vast majority of Americans buy their automobiles by borrowing money to buy the automobile. We now use our credit cards to pick up a, a, a bottle of water at a local convenience store. That's a loan. When you use your credit card, that is an automatic loan from the bank to you into the hands of the merchant you buy the water from. And now we have even a new one. Millions of our young people, students, going to school have to borrow money to get an education. Money is everywhere. Money makes the world go round. Access to credit is the lubrication that keeps the economic machinery turning. In other words, it is what we mean by a social reality. It is about all of society. Our whole society needs it. It has to be managed in such a way that it becomes 
lubricating oil for the economy and not sand in the machinery that prevents it from working. A messed up credit system, a messed up banking system, that is a danger for an economically uh, organized society like ours It depends on credit. Since it's a socially needed thing, money and credit, it ought to be, of course, managed and controlled by the society as a whole in the interests of society. But we don't do that in the United States. And that's the root problem. We allow money and credit to be in the hands of private enterprises. Things like the First Republic Bank or the Silicon Valley Bank or J.P. Morgan Chase Bank. And you know what they're in business to do? To manage the money for society? Not at all. They're in business, like all businesses, to make a profit for their shareholders, to keep their executives at the high pay that they enjoy. That's what they focus on. That's what they're rewarded for. And if they don't make profits for the bank, they're punished and they won't go up in their career. So we have a fundamental disconnect. We have something society needs to be managed in the interests of society, money and credit, but we leave it in the hands of people who have a completely different objective to privately be profitable, each for their own bank. Now, you could, of course, overcome this absurd disconnect by pretending, as professors of money and finance like to do, that by some magic, what banks do for their private profit turns out to be what the society needs. But that's only a magic trick. That doesn't happen. And you know how we know it? Because we have bank collapses all the time, like the one we're going through now. That's the fundamental problem. And in a moment, after the break, I'll come back and explain just how much it costs us. We've come to the end of the first half of today's show. Please stay with us. We will be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. We've been discussing the banking crisis in the United States, its nature, its root causes, the problem. I want to now go into a little bit of the details about this particular crisis. But before I do, I want to remind everyone of a little bit of American history. We have had bank failures and bank crises throughout the history of the United States. During the 19th century, they were typically called by a slightly different name. They were called banking panics or money panics. That was a much more honest period of time in our history because panic is the right word. What you began to see would be suddenly frightened businessmen and women, frightened individuals running to the bank in their community, hoping to get there before it locked its doors so they could withdraw their deposits when there was still an opportunity to do so. Because when the bank went belly up, it was an open question whether you'd ever get the money you had entrusted to the bank. That's why there were lots of very smart grandmas who never put the money in the bank, put it in the mattress, because in a way, 
that was safer. Banks have been falling apart over and over again. That's why we have an endless series of banking laws, banking reforms. After every panic, there was some reform, a new law, and we were told by politicians, this will make sure this awful panic doesn't happen again. False, it happened again and again. Even after the Great Depression hit in 1929, we had the Banking Act of 1933 that built all kinds of reforms. And the banking industry did to those reforms what it has done to all of them. Try to block it. Try to delay it. If you, after you can't block and delay it anymore, you evade it. If you can, you go back into Congress and weaken the law of reforms and regulations. And if you're really powerful and you get your ducks lined up, you can repeal the laws that established regulations. Some of you know the history of the Banking Act of 1933, also known as the Glass-Steagall Act, that controlled American banking until the 1990s, when under President Clinton, the Congress repealed Glass-Steagall right at the end of the last century. And a mere eight years later, we had a banking collapse, of course. And after that, we passed the Dodd-Frank reform bill, which was evaded and weakened. The same story. In a capitalist system, the effort to control banks in the United States has always failed. And it's the same theater each time. A panic, a disaster, heavily costs paid, a reform, and then the evasion and weakening and eventual repeal of the reform, setting up the next bank crisis. The wonder is not that we go through it. The wonder is that the American people tolerate it. And the cause of the toleration has something to do with the power of private bankers to hold on to a private banking system that has worked so badly for 150 years. It's extraordinary. I want to tell you now about some of the costs. When a bank fails, if the deposits have been insured, one of the entities that has to come in and play a role is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC. You may have seen literature about them in the bank where you do your banking. Their job is to insure the deposits we put in there so that if the bank goes belly up, as they always have sooner or later, we will be safe because the government, in the form of the FDIC, will insure our deposit. Well, at the end of 2022, the total holdings in that bank to cover their costs was $128 billion. After the First Republic went belly up, they were down to $92 billion. Yeah, almost $40 billion of money. And where does that money come from? Turns out banks have to pay a little insurance bill on their deposits to build up this insurance in case it goes belly up. Now, the banks don't like paying that insurance. So guess what? We all have fees to pay to the bank, don't we? If we have an overdraft, if our checks bounce, if we're late with this or that. The banks are full of fees. Some you see, some you don't. 
And that's how they pay for the insurance, which they then get to compensate them for giving us the deposits of ours that they've lost through bad investments. As I go on, you will see this is getting worse and worse. You know, one of the proposals now, insured corporate deposits for more used to have a limit of $250,000, the way individuals accounts do. Now they want to give them an insurance for much more. You know what that means? Less risk. They don't have to be as careful as they're supposed to be. They're not as careful as they're supposed to be. That's why we have a problem in the first place. We're now going to give them more government backstopping for the risks they don't want to take, but they now will take because the cost to them has become socialized. Private profits, socialized costs. Look, what we're at the end of is a series of herky-jerky politics of government economic management that gets messed up. Let me summarize it for you. In the year 2020, we had an economic crash, second worst one in American history in terms of the number of people who lost jobs, the number of businesses that shut down. Then we had the pandemic terrible blow to the American economy. How well did we handle that? Well, let me summarize it this way as a nation. We have four and a half percent, not even, of the world's population, we Americans. But we suffered 16 percent of the world's deaths from COVID. Not a pretty picture. And before the COVID catastrophe was over, we had a new economic problem, an inflation partly affected by all the money that the government threw into the economy to try to cope with the depression of 2020 and the pandemic. That wasn't smart. Too much money, chasing too few goods. Corporations said, whoa, with all of that extra money pumped into the economy to cope with the recession, to cope with COVID, this is our chance to raise prices. People can afford to pay them. So they did. So we've had now an inflation for a year and a half. Now the herky-jerky government has to do something about the inflation, so they raise interest rates. Not the only policy to use, not a good one. And a side effect of the interest rate increase is that the value of government bonds go down. Interest rates up, value of bonds go down. Well, who owns the bonds? Answer, banks do. Banks take the deposits we put in there for which we get next to nothing and lend that money to the federal government buying their bonds and the bank lives off the difference. But if the value of the bonds comes down, the banks are sitting on bonds that aren't worth what they paid for them. That's why when the deposits got pulled out of Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank or First Republic Bank, they couldn't manage it because the bonds they had, if they had sold them, wouldn't fetch them anything like what they paid for them. They were bankrupt. This is a catastrophe. Every step leading to the next one, herky-jerky economic policy of a society in many ways out of control. This is no way to manage something that our society needs called credit and access to money whether you're an individual, whether you're a business, you depend on credit. 
and that ought to be managed. In most European countries, just a little footnote, government has either taken over the private banks, which it has done in many countries for long periods of time, or turned the banks into cooperatives run by the depositors, the people who actually use the bank. German savings banks are co-ops. We don't do that in the United States. And that's why so many of the banking panics happen here. So much for a banking system that's out of control. But you know, there is more. The government of our society is out of touch. It keeps saying the banks are all sound. Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury, gave a speech a couple of weeks ago in which she told a banking conference that there's going to have to be more mergers, more banks becoming too big to fail. That's not a solution. That's called kicking the problem down the road, solving the problem of regional and small banks by making us all hostages to the big banks. This is not an advance. This is panic in the policy to match panic in the banking sector. And here's another thing our leaders are out of touch with, which has an important lesson for us. We recently had a meeting of the G7. They used to be the powerhouse economies of the world, United States, Britain, France, Germany, Canada, Japan, and so on. But there's a new association of economic powerhouses. It's called the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And the year 2020 not only meant the terrible crash in the United States and the start of the pandemic here, it was also the year where, for the first time in history, the largest economic unit in the world wasn't the G7, U.S. and its allies. It was BRICS, China, and its allies. And things have gotten worse since then. BRICS now accounts for one-third of the output of this planet, whereas the G7 accounts for less than 30%. The United States isn't the economic powerhouse it was. The American empire isn't what it was. The statistics are unmistakable. The rest of the world is watching and adjusting. A dozen countries have applied to join the BRICS. Nobody is applying to join the G7. Does the government want us all to engage in denial? Are we going to go the route of the great British people whose empire declined over the last 150 years while they pretended it wasn't happening? even to the point of having a funeral and a coronation a few weeks ago, as if they were still the empire. Well, here's the answer the American people have given. And I want to end with that because I'm very moved by it. In the period of March 27th to April 2nd of this year, 2023, the Pew Research Center, P-E-W, a very well-respected polling group, Ask the American people a random selection the following questions. Look ahead to the year 2050. And they asked, will the U.S. economy be weaker or stronger 
66% said weaker, 32% said stronger. Here's the second question. The U.S. will be less important in the world or it will be more important in the world? 71% said it will be less. 27% said it will be more. The country will be more politically divided. 77% said more. 21% said less. And the gap between the rich and poor will grow. 81% said yes. 18% said no. The leaders of this country don't understand and are practicing denial. But the people of this country get the picture really clearly. This is Richard Wolf for Democracy at Work, thanking you and reminding you that I look forward to speaking with you again next week. This is WMNF Tampa. Stay tuned for... Richard Wolf's Counterspin next, and then don't forget now, True Talk starts at noon to one today, so don't go anywhere. Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, going on strike is something that people with no personal experience are comfortable depicting as frivolous or selfish. That extends to many corporate news reporters who appear unable to present a labor action as other than, first and foremost, an unwanted interruption of a natural order. However else they explain the issues at stake or humanistically portray individual strikers, the overarching narrative is that workers are pressing their luck and that owners, who make their money off the efforts of those workers, are not to be questioned. It's a weird presentation, whether it's baristas or dock workers or TV and movie writers. As we record on May 25th, the Writers Guild strike is on its 23rd day and having the intended effect of shutting down production on sets around the country. Eric Thurm wrote a useful explainer on the WGA strike for GQ. Thurm is campaigns coordinator for the National Writers Union and a steering committee member of the Freelance Solidarity Project. We'll hear from him about some behind-the-scenes aspects of the strike affecting what you may see on screen. That's coming up, but first a quick look back at some recent press. CNN aired a special report, What Happened to San Francisco?, that wondered, can the city be saved? As Ari Paul writes for Fair.org, what mainly happened to San Francisco is that it became the target of right-wing attacks. 
CNN claimed that, quote, the city by the bay is now at the forefront of the nation's homelessness, mental illness, and drug addiction crises, close quote, and that some, quote, residents worry Northern California's largest municipality could become a so-called failed city, close quote. This is of a piece with an elite media chorus that Paul reminds treated the recent closing of a Bay Area Whole Foods like Afghanistan falling to the Taliban. The story is that permissive policies protecting the homeless have allowed a zombie army of criminals to control the city, countered only by a police force that can do nothing, democratic politicians fearful to act, and tech bosses cowering in fear. Rupert Murdoch fair for ages, this is being embraced by more centrist press as well. The New York Times reported the fatal stabbing of tech executive Bob Lee as a symbol of, quote, deepening frustration over the city's homelessness crisis, close quote, until, oops, another tech leader, housed as it happens, was arrested for the murder. The term failed city, which The Atlantic used to headline a piece that blamed San Francisco's soft spot for vagabonds, evokes the failed state designation popularized in the 90s to refer to a nation state utterly incapable of sustaining itself as a member of the international community, a definition that seems designed to invite intervention by said community. It's a place where civil society has broken down amid collapse in central governance. Well, the news site SFGate has noted that violent crime rates in San Francisco are not outliers but match national trends. Local TV station KGO reports that the San Francisco Police Department budget increased by 4.4 percent from 2019 to 2022. CDC data notes that the highest rates of drug overdose mortality are in West Virginia, Tennessee, Louisiana, and Kentucky, with California far behind. Department of Agriculture research shows that the highest poverty states are Louisiana, West Virginia, New Mexico, and Mississippi. And Forbes' 2023 list of the most dangerous cities cites New Orleans, Detroit, St. Louis, and Memphis, as well as Mobile and Birmingham, Alabama, but not San Francisco. Seven cities have higher rates of homelessness, including New York City, L.A., and Las Vegas. Meanwhile, a pending lawsuit from the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights says that from 2015 to 2022, San Francisco only built 33% of the deeply affordable housing units it promised. And only a quarter of actual housing production went to affordable housing. And elite hand-wringing aside, Paul notes, there is thus far no major world body that considers the loss of a Whole Foods a valid metric of societal meltdown. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Whenever workers find their employment conditions or those of their co-workers so difficult or dangerous, so precarious, or simply so unfair that they make the decision to withhold their labor in order to affect change, it's a big deal. Sometimes a life-altering one for individuals and sometimes a sea change for an industry. But folks who have never been in that situation don't always understand it. 
and some don't try. What looks like public support for the ongoing strike by the Writers Guild of America may stem from the fact that it centers on the people who write the TV shows and movies that help many of us get through this thing called life. But does that mean it includes an understanding of the role that power and the balance of power plays in all labor actions? That could definitely be an added benefit, no matter the particular outcomes here. Eric Thurm is the campaigns coordinator for the National Writers Union and a steering committee member of the Freelance Solidarity Project. His explainer on the writers' strike appeared recently in GQ, and he joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Eric Thurm. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, labor actions in various industries are definitely perceived differently by the broader public and by the news media that report on them. I think that difference stems in part from just a lack of consistent worker-centered journalism generally, but also from this idea of just, well, if you make more money than I do, I can't see your beef. You know, in, in the case of writers, it goes up a notch as with athletes. You make money doing something fun. You know, it, it, it becomes almost how dare you. And there's a lot wrong with that. But part of it is this laser focus on money. Pay is central often. And why wouldn't it be? That's the literal currency of valuing work. But labor actions are virtually always about something more than that. So take your time, if you would, and break down, particularly those behind-the-scenes industry specifics uh, that we as outsiders might not see but should see as the central issues in what looks like an important strike. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that there are a couple of things that are driving the strike. One of them is that for all that there is a popular perception that writers get paid extremely well, that increasingly is not the case. And in the same way that it is, like you mentioned, for athletes or for actors or for a lot of other highly visible professions, there is a very small number of people at the top who basically have a winning lottery ticket and just get paid extremely well. But in order to even have a chance at winning that, you have to spend a lot of time in the trenches with much worse working conditions, often even less pay. I think that a lot of people that might be reading about the strike and turning their noses up with a lot less stability. And in particular, original source of stability and the reason that a lot of people have been able to make a career as writers is because of something called residuals, which basically is an amount of money that you get paid when something that you worked on and and are credited on gets used in another context. So that's why if you ever have heard people talk about syndication or like getting to 100 episodes. If you wrote, let's say, one episode of Friends, and when that gets to the point where it just is like on TBS all the time, you get a check every time it airs. And that functions as an additional bit of stability, particularly because even people that have been successful often have very long periods without working just because of the nature of the industry. And that safety net, I think, as like safety nets for people in all industries are are being slowly dismantled or as bosses are trying to dismantle them, that is a safety net that a lot of writers don't have anymore, especially because the residual payments for streaming are basically nothing. So in theory, 
you could write something that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people are watching on Netflix or Hulu or something, and you will see no additional money from that. I think viewers understand that we're watching media differently today. I can watch a whole series that took months or years to create in a weekend. And I'm like, well, that's that. As media critics, we don't blame the people. But there are things that we don't see that could be useful for us to understand. And I think residuals is definitely one of those. And then also you write about something called a a mini room, like it has to do with the pipeline of how you grow and get work as a writer that I don't see just watching TV, but is very meaningful for the quality of what I see. Totally. And that's something that if you, like me, are a big nerd about this sort of thing, you sort of start to notice people's names popping up in different contexts and credits of things. And you, if you pay a lot of attention, you start to see that pipeline. But for a lot of people, it definitely is invisible. So basically, a mini room essentially means a writer's room that has fewer writers in it and is convened for less time. There are supposed to be basic minimums in the WGA contract, and they're the minimum basic agreement that stipulate If you are making this type of TV show, you have to have this number of writers and they have to be employed for X amount of time. And that is also an additional source of stability, but it also is how people learn the business and how people learn how to produce or how to eventually make their own shows. So if you are the new writer, which in in a lot of respects is still kind of a misnomer because of, you know, by the time somebody gets staffed on their first room if they're working in TV, it's very possible, if not likely, that they have been grinding away at a, at a lot of other things for a long time. But once you get that credit, you spend time around the showrunners and the people that are more senior to you who know a little bit more about the industry and you observe them. A lot of the time, writers will go to set to supervise on episodes that they wrote, which can be really important for a lot of reasons, both because it is useful training for the writer, but also because A lot of decisions get made on a snap basis on set, and the writer is the person who knows where the show is going, where the show has been. You know, I think people have this assumption that everybody knows everything about the overall plan of the show at any given moment. Mm -hmm. But if you're the director or the cinematographer or even some of the actors, you don't know that. And so things that might feel disjointed to people if you're watching something that, for example, has a mini room would probably actually be much better and make more sense if there had been a writer on set to be like, actually, this is where we're taking it. Let's make a decision that's more in line with the overall creative direction. And that also is how people learn all the ins and outs of this stuff. And without having that, there just is no way for people to get better at their craft or to develop any of the skills that people need to have in order to make any of the stuff that we like. Just to give one example, Vince Gilligan, who created... Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and, you know, this stuff that people really like, worked for quite a while on The X-Files and wrote a bunch of episodes and produced some of the episodes and then eventually ran this very brief spinoff. And you can really see how those careers develop, right? People that don't emerge out of nowhere knowing how to run the small army that is a, a TV production. It also sounds just a little bit like a lot of other workplaces where... Management says, ooh, if you work 40 hours, you get benefits, so we're just going to book two people for 20 hours. Like, it sounds like evading 
valuing people. And and one of the things that you wrote in the GQ piece was emerging technologies will continue to be a tool for companies seeking to reduce the amount they pay workers or to get rid of them entirely. And I just think that's another issue where people are kind of shadow informed, halfway informed. It's not that writers hate technology, obviously, or hate AI or don't understand it, but it's another part of kind of the power relationship here. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I talked about a little bit in the piece is that technology has been a source of struggle for decades in uh, particularly the Writers Guild contracts, because essentially every time technology evolves, the studios will use it as a way to attempt to cut workers out, which I suspect a lot of people will be intimately familiar with. You know, this is the sort of like business model of some of the sort of biggest companies and most worker hostile companies in the world. And that dates back to when home video emerged or when DVD box sets emerged. And part of the reason that streaming pays so little is that it was new the last time that the writers went on strike in 2007, and they sort of agreed to have it be covered by the minimum basic agreement, but not as fully as like a TV network. And so, of course, like the companies exploited that as much as possible. And like on some level, it's hard to blame them, at least in the sense that, right, the the purpose of the company is to take as much value out of the workers as they can. And this is what people are referring to when they say that the studios are really trying as much as possible to turn writing, but also acting and all of the other myriad jobs that go into making entertainment that people watch into gig work, Mm -hmm. into stuff where you just have no say in, in your work and are told by this unfeeling algorithm or app or whatever it is, what you are and are not supposed to do. And in the context of what people like to call AI, Beyond the fact that the additional issue with a lot of these programs is that they are trained on a lot of other people's work. Mm -hmm. I saw someone recently describe it as this is just a plagiarism machine, which I think is like a very accurate uh, description. Even in cases where it does something interesting, you can use it as a smokescreen to avoid having to credit the people that created something. I think that's something that we are going to see the studios try more and more even without necessarily having AI be involved. Like literally just the day before we're having this conversation, HBO Max rebranded as Just Max, and apparently they've changed the way that movies and TV and everything sort of show up on their site so that it just says creators, um, and that will include like producers and directors and some other people, and you don't really know who did what, rather than saying this was directed by this person and this was written by this person. And I think that that attempt to obfuscate things and make it harder to understand the people who are actually creating something is the entire point of how, you know, the the studios are trying to handle this and part of why they're so interested in AI. I think a lot of folks would actually be maybe a little surprised and certainly disheartened to know that bosses in creative industries act a lot like Bosses in every other industry, the response has been essentially, you're lucky to have a job, you ungrateful whelp. There's a line of people just like you I could hire tomorrow. And then also like, I thought we were all friends. Like this is the line that Starbucks gives baristas who go on strike. There's a lot of similarities across industry 
that might be more important than the differences. And yet nobody asks the CEOs, aren't you a creative? Isn't this a labor of love for you? You know, like this sort of general societal understanding, which I blame news media a lot for, is that a strike is an interruption in a natural order of things. And the workers who go on strike are to blame for any disruptions or harms that come from it. Yeah, I think that that's definitely true. And you could have long conversations or write like whole books, you know, about the attempt of capital and like bosses and, you know, of of corporations to make their profit extracting mechanisms look like these very sort of cuddly or like friendly things. I think there's like you're saying like a real sort of direct line to bosses saying like, oh, I just like we're all a family here and like we don't want union. That's like so sort of somehow a third party, even though it's just the workers coming between us and our, our little family. And even in the context of these negotiations, one of the things that the writers are are asking for is these more concrete minimums for staffing in terms of like numbers of writers and the amount of time that people are in rooms. Right. And the studio response was to say like, this is an unfair or sort of arbitrary quota that is, and I think this is the direct quote, counter to the creative nature of our industry. Right. And it's like, okay, you know, you're not the people making the creative decisions. <laughs> exactly. And, 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 you know, if you were, right, like I would love to see, you know, sort of what these people came up with if they had to try to write like a, a whole season of, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer or something. And it's funny. I think that that actually is something that, comes out of or is sort of like impressed into a lot of not just news media, but entertainment media. I I don't really know exactly how to fully extricate these things, but I do think that it's quite telling that one of the sort of dominant forms of media that makes the most money and gets the most sort of push behind it is the workplace sitcom, the central thesis of which is that your coworkers are supposed to be your family. And it's like extremely rare, you know, to see anything like that where anybody really talks about the sort of material conditions of people in the in the workplace. That's, that's a great point. That's a kind of bugbear of mine. And, you know, I, I sort of am, am cautiously optimistic about what will come out of the strike and what will come out of what I, I think is a much more increased labor consciousness among people both in these like creative industries, but also sort of more broadly. When I was growing up, and I think that for for quite a long time, the dominant Hollywood depiction of labor is, you know, oh, union bosses, like corruption, blah, 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 all the sort of things, you know, that we've heard a million times. And I think that in a lot of respects, that really is a lingering effect of like the Red Scare and like a lot of sort of purges of people in creative fields. And it does feel like there's been at least some recovery or attempts to change that. Even something like Riverdale, this adaptation of a previously existing IP that's like a kind of silly CW teen soap, had like a really fantastic subplot in uh, one of the most recent seasons where Archie from Archie Comics forms a union and they have like all these conversations about solidarity and about the importance of music and labor formations and the stuff that I would never have expected to see even two or three years ago. Well, I'm going to ask you one final and also hopeful question on that. I did want to just kind of cram in this Washington Post piece 
that fits this template that we're talking about that was talking about the last Hollywood writer strike, which you referenced in 2007, 2008. And the Post piece said that that strike, quote, cost writers and other workers an estimated $772 million, while knock-on effects did more than $2 billion in damage to the broader California economy. Promising shows were hamstrung, Promising movies were shot with half-finished scripts. Promising careers were cut short, close quote. And if that wasn't enough, the piece went on to say that because of those darn strikers, TV was forced to go to reality shows and, yep, Donald Trump, you know. So I guess the idea was maybe think about that when you're supporting striking workers. You know, I, I don't even think this piece was meant to be mean, but it was such the template of... The labor action causes damage. The labor action causes hurt. And what went before it was somehow not causing damage and not causing hurt. And so you're supposed to be mad at the interrupters. And I just want to attach that, though, to the idea that we know that many journalists have kind of internalized the idea that they aren't workers. They're independent contractors. You know, they're just individuals doing a job and, and unions are kind of icky. And who needs solidarity until it happens to you? All of which is just to say that you see change there. Besides the landscape, you see change in that mindset among writers, among journalists, the, a change in the idea that no, we're not workers. No, we don't need to band together. You see something different happening there. Yeah, definitely. That's something that has been really heartening for me. I've been in and around digital media for uh, a little over a, a decade now, which feels really wild to say. <laughs> but the beginning of that period, like I was in college and I had no real sort of understanding of a lot of these issues. And I, I definitely, I think if you had asked me, like I really did feel, oh, I'm lucky to be here. In the intervening years, and especially since Gawker unionized in, I think, 2015, the rush of solidarity and the proliferation of unions across digital media has been really powerful. And I think that that has been both enormously meaningful for the people that are doing the work and then getting a lot of people who, like I think you said, would not have ordinarily thought of themselves as workers to see themselves as such. It also has sort of created this broader awareness that I think has led to much better journalism in the last few years. Even places like Vice or the, the Washington Post or mm -hmm. like Business Insider and these people who are sort of able to get jobs where they can cover this stuff. Um, and I think that there are like a lot of reasons why, you know, a lot of lines you can draw between the strength of these unions and the ability to produce this kind of coverage. But that also has led, I think to a much stronger sense of worker solidarity across the industry. So I am really involved in the Freelance Solidarity Project, which organizes freelancers across digital media. As a division of the National Writers Union, we have done a lot to organize in parallel with and supporting people who are facing similarly precarious conditions. And I think that a lot of people who before would have been like, I sort of exist like above things and I, I would never think of myself as being in the same position as, you know, someone who has like a gig based job. I think now people are a lot more aware of the similarity of those positions 
and a lot more sort of thoughtful about what's driving that precarity and, you know, what we can do to stop it, which also is something I think that you see as the WGA strike plays out right now. A lot of people who are unionized with IASI, which is the union that represents most below-the-line crew and production staff, a lot of IASI workers have refused to cross picket lines, and all of these things are part of what makes production possible, and it's part of why so many shows have had to shut down. The sort of economic damage that you reference, you know, that the, this like Washington Post article is talking about, not only is it caused by the bosses, but it also is the direct result of people being able to stand in solidarity and say, we are not going to allow this thing to continue to happen. And it's been really heartening to me to see so many people say, I am so amazed by the Teamsters standing with us. If they have to go out this summer, we're going to be right there. I think that's so great. It sounds like you're saying better solidarity among workers leads also to better creations and better work. I sure hope so. We've been speaking with Eric Thurm. He's campaign's coordinator for the National Writers Union. They're online at nwu.org. He's a steering committee member of the Freelance Solidarity Project, freelancesolidarity.org. And you can still find his explainer on the ongoing writer's strike at gq.com. Eric Thurm, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the Media Watch Group Fair, based in New York. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Stay tuned for NPR News and then True Talk from 12 to 1. So don't go anywhere. This is WMNF Tampa, 88.5 on the left side of your dial. Stay tuned for NPR News, and then True Talk will be on from 12 to 1. And music starts at 1 with Mark Hart, and it's the music. So stick around. Don't go anywhere. Mm-hmm.